This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz, Literary Director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference, and this is Beyond the Page. My guest this episode is one of the finest journalists working today. A staff writer for The New Yorker, Patrick Radden Keefe is the author, among other books, of the narrative nonfiction classic, and I don't use the word lightly, it's amazing. Say Nothing, a true story of murder and memory in Northern Ireland, and of the totally different, but equally riveting, Empire of Pain, the secret history of the Sackler dynasty, currently on the Times bestseller list, and the subject of our conversation today. Reading Patrick on any subject, I always find myself struck by the depth and intelligence of his repertorial and researching instincts, which, as with all of our most trenchant journalists, borders on the obsessive, but also by the sheer skill of his storytelling, which to me seems the equal of our very best novelists. Welcome to Beyond the Page, Patrick. It's only been, what, a month since we were together in Sun Valley? But great to be with you again, though. I'm so glad you're here. Um, So let's dive in. You said your intention in Empire of Pain was not to write the story of opioids in America, certainly one of the most severe social and public health crises of the last half century, and one which, as you've said, has been documented in several excellent books by colleagues of yours but to write a story about one family, the Sacklers, and its dynastic rise to unimaginable fortune, and ultimately its fall from public grace, through the production and selling of pain medications that have led to the deaths of more than a half million people so far. So, first off, how did you come to the story of Empire of Pain, and what was it about the particular arc of the Sacklers' history that made you feel that theirs was a story that needed to be told now in all of its fascinating detail? Oh, boy. Well, I, I should say, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's great to, great to have uh, a chance it's great. to chat with I'm you. so glad. And um, I had been interested for years and years in drugs and in the role that drugs play in our society, illegal drugs, legal drugs where we draw those lines, how we make those classifications. And I had written a couple of big pieces about the business of the Mexican drug cartels. And so I came to this uh, subject in a kind of somewhat surprising manner where I had been looking at these big Mexican drug cartels that export huge volumes of illegal drugs across the border into the U.S. every year. And there was this interesting anomaly, which is that at a certain point in around 2010, they started shipping more and more heroin into the U.S. And so I was trying to sort of figure that out. And it had to be demand driven. So why is it that suddenly there would be this great uptick in demand for heroin? Mm -hmm. And that was how I came to the opioid crisis as an issue. I had been aware that there was an opioid crisis. But what I discovered is that there was a whole generation of people who's on-ramp to drugs like heroin and eventually fentanyl 
was prescription pharmaceuticals. And hmm. there have been a bunch of prescription painkillers that helped spark the opioid crisis. But really, the what I came to learn is that the most significant of those drugs early on was OxyContin. And what was really surprising to me was to discover that OxyContin was made and marketed by this company, Purdue Pharma, this small privately mm-hmm. held pharmaceutical company based in Stamford, Connecticut, and that the company was entirely owned by the Sackler family. And this was shocking to me because I knew that name. You know, I, I was aware of mm-hmm. the Sacklers because you go to the Sackler wing at the Met in New York City. I grew up in Boston and there's a Sackler Museum at Harvard. I, I know that museum. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a name I that know. you start, once, you, once you're looking for it, Certainly, if you're talking about institutions of higher learning or the arts, it's a name you see everywhere. And to me, that was so fascinating to think that here's this name that has been kind of glorified as synonymous with a certain kind of philanthropic generosity and support for prominent civic institutions. And what was less well known until fairly recently was that the bulk of this wealth derived from this drug that had this incredibly controversial legacy and was thought of by many as having really precipitated the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. So at that point, when you first began to be aware of of OxyContin through your study of, of the heroin trade, and then you connected it with Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, you still didn't really understand how deep that connection went and what it actually meant in dynastic terms. And so that takes me back to the original patriarch of the family as you begin to dive into the full story that became the book. So though Isaac Sackler, the original patriarch who came to America at the turn of the last century and didn't speak any English along with his wife, Sophie, he does not end up inhabiting many of the book's pages when it, when all is said and done. But the message that he passes on to his sons before his early death, especially to Arthur Sackler, the eldest son, uh, as we'll see, resonates through the history in astounding ways. And I think we can definitely say it's still resonating to this day. So what was Isaac's message? And a corollary question, I guess, is when you came to that message and you began to understand the arc, was that your sort of original aha moment you know, for the book and the foundation on which you built this parable of the Sackler family. Yeah, it was funny. I mean, you know, in your generous introduction, you talked about kind of reporting on one side of the ledger and then storytelling on the other. Mm. And it's always interesting to me to think about the relationship between the two, where on the one hand, you want to write a story that has a kind of novelistic flow to it and hopefully a novelistic structure where you engage with these people and really come to understand them as characters and Mm -hmm. feel uh, in a book like this, a kind of accumulating sense of tragedy in the story. At the same time, you know, as a nonfiction writer who has to end note everything scrupulously, you're kind of at the mercy of the material, right? You only, the story will only be as good as what you can dig up and substantiate. And so this is a case where I had, I knew, I knew I was writing the book. I didn't discover this anecdote until I was a ways in. I knew I wanted to write a multi-generational story about this family, but there was this common trait, which is that starting with Isaac's three sons, 
Arthur Mortimer and Raymond, these three boys who grew up during the Great Depression in Brooklyn. So biblical, Isaac's yeah, three sons, right? I know. Yeah. <laughs> they, um, they all have this drive to put the name on buildings and on galleries and on even individual art objects. You know, this is a gift of the Arthur Sackler collection. And I was just trying to figure out why. I wondered if there was some explanation for that, because you see that then in their children and in their children's children. They're, they're, across three generations of this family, you see this impulse. And I made this amazing discovery, which is the, the anecdote that you reference, which is that Isaac Sackler, their father, loses everything in the Great Depression. And he gathers his sons to him and he, he says to them, he apologizes because he says, I'm not going to be able to pay for your education. They always knew that education would be very important. You're going to have to go out and work and support yourselves. I can't give you any money. But then he said, you know, I am giving you one thing, though, which is more important than money. I'm giving you the most important thing a parent can give a child, which is a good name. And what he said to them was, if you lose a fortune, you can always earn another. But if you lose your good name, you can never get it back. And so there's this speech that he delivers about the kind of talismanic significance of the name and the idea of a name as sort of, um, you know, synonymous with integrity, a name as meaning mm -hmm. something. And that was this, in terms of the storytelling of it, that really unlocked something for me because it explained why it is that as soon as these guys started making any money at all, they would give it away always with these very scrupulous naming agreements. And so, yeah just from a kind of writing perspective, that was a really useful discovery because it, it both explains the characters, but also gives some sort of context to what's been happening more recently with the family. Name. Well, you could also, since you were aware of what's happened to the Sackler family more recently, even though this was a few years ago and you were starting, starting the book, uh, you could see the end of the arc as it were. And this incredible fit, uh, almost um, tragic fit, if you would, uh, between what was said and 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 how they got it all wrong, in a sense, Absolutely. how they reversed. Yeah, and if you the, think about it, I mean, even just through the arc of time, right? So that's a conversation that Isaac Sackler had with his sons in the 20s, 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I discovered it in an interview that Arthur Sackler gave, or excuse me, it was a conversation Isaac Sackler had 100 years ago. His son, Arthur, recounted that conversation in an interview with a student publication at Tufts in the 80s. So this is when the Sackler name yeah. really means a lot at that point. It means good things. Yeah. Harvard is putting up Sackler institutions left and Absolutely. right. And Arthur, in a kind of self-glorifying way, self-mythologizing way, recounts that story. And then I make the discovery in 2019, 2020, by which point the Sackler name doesn't mean what it used to. Yeah. It is amazing, and also that he would give it to a student publication because he was so private, um, the whole family, which we'll get into more. But you brought up Arthur in particular, and it seems to me that Arthur Sackler is the book's true protagonist, the engine of ambition that drives the family's interest, the character around which the family's arc really tilts. And I wonder if you would agree with that assessment, or do you feel it's someone or something else, or there is no one protagonist, if you will. You know, it's interesting. There was this very conscious decision on my part to devote the first third of the book to Arthur. Mm -hmm. Even though he dies in 1987, he dies before the introduction of OxyContin. And to me, the reason that choice made sense 
was that, you know, it wasn't purely that he's related by blood to these other people. It's that he was this mm -hmm. pioneer. And so I came to feel as I dug into his life story that, you know, Arthur's this guy who kind of pioneers medical advertising, pharmaceutical advertising. His whole career in a way was about collapsing any kind of boundary between medical treatment and commerce. And so today when we mm -hmm. talk, you know, in the broadest way about how everything in our experience of healthcare in this country has been monetized beyond recognition, Arthur was kind of there at the beginning and he was a big champion for the monetization of everything. So I think he kind of creates the world in which OxyContin can happen. And yeah, I, I think you're right. He kind of is the chief protagonist in a way, even though he dies before the drug is ever introduced. So for those who don't know all the specifics, the Sackler parents almost demanded that their children become doctors. Medicine was the ideal profession, if you will, that they wanted their first-generation American children to inhabit. And in fact, all three sons went on to become doctors. And yet, generations after them have also gotten medical degrees. And yet, their notion of being doctors is not exactly how we think of it. And in fact, you know, within a few years, Arthur, this entrepreneurial sort of energy ball, also owned an advertising firm, if not more than one. So could you explain what kind of doctors they were and Arthur was and how somehow he was able to combine that with marketing and advertising and how that led him into his first great successes in drugs and how, which is the real money that began to pour in into the Sackler family fortune. Yeah, absolutely. So you're quite right. The parents, you know, Arthur later said that by the time he was four years old, he knew he would be a doctor, that his parents didn't <laughs> leave a lot of ambiguity on that question. And I think they had a sense that being a doctor was a, it was a noble profession, that it was also economically stable one and a way to you know, in some ways, the, the early innings of this story are all about our kind of mythic American notions of the meritocracy. You know, you have these two mm -hmm. people who come to this country, they don't speak any English, they don't have any resources, they have three kids. And their notion was, if they get educated and they become doctors, there's nothing these children cannot do. And that turns out to be quite true. So Arthur becomes a, a psychiatrist. His brothers do as well. And they are involved in medical research in the 1940s, but they always had this kind of very keen entrepreneurial sensibility. I think in part in Arthur's case, because he's this, as you say, he's this sort of volcanic character. He's got all this energy and all this ambition. And there's just so much that he wants to do that in a way, just being a practicing doctor or a research physician is not going to really do it for him. It's not going to mm -hmm. scratch the itch. I also think that the backdrop of the depression created a very strong imperative to get out there and make a fortune, which he does. And the way he does it, interestingly, is through medical advertising. So he had been actually going back to his teenage years. He had worked on, you know, doing advertising copy. There's an amazing story about how he and his brothers, they sold ads for the student newspaper at their high school in Brooklyn. And um, they got a nice commission from Chesterfield Cigarettes. You know, they would advertise <laughs> cigarettes to their thousands of fellow students. And Arthur ends up kind of revolutionizing medical advertising in the 1950s. He, he becomes this sort of Don Draper type figure where he has a very intuitive grasp on 
not so much how you sell pills to patients as how you sell them to doctors. The idea being the person you really want to seduce is the physician who's writing the prescriptions. And Mm. he ends up owning his own advertising firm and secretly having a stake in the biggest competing, the the other big medical advertising agency in Mm -hmm. town and doing very, very well that way. But the way he really made his first big fortune is Roche was one of his clients. And Mm -hmm. in the 1960s, they introduced Librium and then Valium, these two minor tranquilizers, which became respectively that they, you know, that I think Librium was the biggest blockbuster drug at the time. It was the most successful drug in the history of pharma. And then it was replaced by Valium, which, and then the two were in the top five for about a decade. And were the the great, incredible success of those two drugs directly related to the inspiration he had about how to sell those drugs? Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, he he devised really the way in which they were marketed. And there was a way in which he also initiated a different way of being paid, of making money, didn't he? I mean, which to me seems so ahead of his time, but of course became one of the secrets to how much money the Sacklers ended up making. Yeah. What was that? He ha- well, he, Arthur was very into the idea of betting on yourself. And so, and you actually see this at different junctures in his life. But in the case of Roche, what he did was he said, when you pay me for my work marketing these drugs, I want, you know, it, it's not points exactly, but basically what he said is I want an escalating series of bonuses pegged to the volume of pills that you sell. Mm-hmm. with no ceiling, with no limit. And these drugs then became just stratospherically successful. And so that was, that was a very good uh, move on his part in terms of designing the compensation. What's interesting is you track forward 40 years and you have a sales force. You know, Arthur had been a big advocate in, um, of big sales forces where you have pharmaceutical representatives who go out and meet with doctors and nurses mm-hmm. and pharmacists. And Purdue Pharma, when it launches, not to jump ahead too much, but when yeah. Purdue Pharma, the family company, launches OxyContin in 1996, their sales representatives are all incentivized where they're going to get bigger bonuses depending on how much OxyContin is prescribed by the doctors that they visit, and there's no cap on the bonuses. So the idea was, it was the only pharmaceutical company that this was true of, that you could just keep escalating and escalating. And if they sold some stratospheric amount of it, you could make hundreds of thousands of dollars in bonuses as a sales rep. So it's like an army of little Arthurs out there, but instead of, and they're not selling cars, they're selling drugs. Exactly. And even though he had died already, and was not there for the, the selling of OxyContin and those drugs. Nonetheless, that system, that ingenious system that he created for making money and selling drugs was firmly entrenched in the family playbook. Uh, yeah, it, it, that, that's, that's exactly the way yeah. I would put it. That there's this playbook that he invents, and then they do bold new things with it after his death. Hmm. So we have Arthur, and then we have Mortimer and Raymond. And there's a, Arthur is most certainly the eldest son in the classic immigrant way. He's out there. He's got, you know, he's got so many jobs when he's growing up that he's actually handing off the ones he doesn't have time for to his little brothers. And they go forth. And for much of his life, Arthur is the one. He's the one that most people know. He becomes an incredible collector of Asian art, as we'll, we'll get into in a little bit. And though on the one hand, 
He's incredibly secretive about his history and where his money comes from. On the other hand, he's the one that sets out to put their name pretty much on all these institutions. And Raymond and Mortimer kind of are brought with him. And the central, you know, they're incredibly close for decades. But by the end of his life, Arthur's barely on speaking terms with Mortimer and Raymond. And the central cause of their rift was the very thing that became the, the greatest engine for the Sacklers' billions of dollars of wealth, which is the purchase by Arthur in 1952 of a small, you know, fairly nondescript over-the-counter pharmaceuticals company called Purdue Frederick, which Arthur basically gives to his brothers to run, almost the way you'd give a puppy to your brothers to keep them busy, right? So how does the transformation of Purdue Frederick into Purdue Pharma the maker of OxyContin dovetail with the transformation of the Sacklers from the family of Arthur, in a sense, to the family of Mortimer and Raymond. And what does this tell us? So you put it well. I mean, they Arthur buys this company for his brothers in 52. And it's interesting because for decades, Purdue Frederick was really successful, but successful in a kind of humdrum, unglamorous way. What they would do really was license products and then sell them. Mm -hmm. And so they had a, an antiseptic solution, Betadine. Um, oh, yeah. They had a, um, you know, one of their big sellers was and is a laxative, Seneca. <laughs> they had a... Um, an earwax remover. I mean, it's funny, you know, the, the old time Purdue Frederick sales rep said, you know, I was a real hit at parties when I told people about the things that I, <laughs> the products that I sold. Sexy stuff. Exactly. But in the seventies, they started to do their own R and D and they acquired a British company called Knapp, which is headquartered in Cambridge, England, and started getting into the treatment of pain. And their first big success, you know, in terms of prescription drugs that they had developed themselves was this drug called MS Contin, which was released in the 1980s and was a morphine pill for the treatment of pain. And you have this period of time when Raymond and Mortimer have fallen out with Arthur. They're still running Purdue, but they've brought in their children to help run the company as well. And so in particular, Raymond had a son, Richard, and another son, Jonathan. So they come in and... Are they all doctors too, right? Uh, so Richard is a doctor, yeah. And then there's Kat yeah. Kathy, who's one of Mortimer's daughters. Uh, she was a doctor. And then there was uh, Mortimer Jr., a son who was not mm -hmm. a doctor. But they kind of fill the company with their offspring with the notion that this is going to be this kind of family company and they will hand it off at a certain point to the successor generation. And... The kids are, I would say, if anything, more ambitious. And it's really Richard Sackler, Raymond's son, who kind of spearheads this move into pain management. And eventually there's a transition from MS Contin, that drug, which is very successful, this morphine drug, chiefly for the treatment of cancer pain, to OxyContin, which is released in 1996 and is a more powerful painkiller, but one that they're going to market not just for cancer pain, but for to everybody. all kinds of pain. Yeah. Hmm. And from that moment on, Purdue Pharma becomes all about OxyContin. It becomes the greatest selling drug in the world, I believe. And at one point it's making how much a year for them? At its height, it was $3 billion a year. It's extraordinary. So two things that are sort of related to what we were just talking about. One is a question about pain. 
how pain management or the idea of pain is looked at and why pain medication, as it was began to get reevaluated in the 80s, particularly as I learned from your book, why the greatest, most popular drugs, most profitable drugs in the world should all be pain management drugs. And how did you end up feeling about what this says about our notion of pain and suffering versus profit, if you will? Yeah, it's a, such a vexing, complex question. There was a reassessment in the 1980s, really starting in the 1980s, by the medical profession in the U.S. and in the U.K. as well, of the way in which pain was treated. You had some physicians who felt that pain had not been treated aggressively enough, that it was something that was just kind of taken for granted by doctors, that they treated it as a symptom, really, but not a problem in and of itself. And so there was a movement, and I believe it was in the first instance, it was kind of an earnest, almost idealistic movement saying, look, people don't need to suffer in terrible pain. Let's look hard at this and think about what we can do. And one of the suggestions was that there had been a reluctance to broadly prescribe opioids, that is, drugs that are derived from the opium poppy. And this is this class of drugs, like morphine, which we've known for thousands of years that they have these incredible therapeutic properties and that they can relieve pain in a, in a really miraculous way. But the twinned with that is this danger, which is that they can be quite addictive. And as a consequence, there was a reluctance by a lot of physicians to prescribe these drugs in any situation that wasn't really severe, cancer pain, end of life care, it was like the solution that you kept on the top shelf and you, mm -hmm. you reached for it only when other remedies had failed. And so there's this kind of reevaluation by a lot of doctors who say, hey, wait a second, you know, maybe this is all hysteria. Maybe we're, there's too much of a phobia and a stigma associated with these drugs and we should use them more widely. And what's interesting, and this happens again and again in the pharma business, is that you have this kind of interesting confluence, right? Where you have these doctors who earnestly believe that, and then you have the pharmaceutical industry, which says, as it happens, we agree with you. Could we throw you a conference? Could we underwrite your yeah. research? Would you mind giving a testimonial uh, in support of our drug? Mm -hmm. So you get this kind of hand in glove cooperation between these, these physicians on the one hand and industry on the other. And the introduction of OxyContin becomes a really significant moment in this history because there is a kind of a, an alliance of those doctors I mentioned, and then Purdue, mm -hmm. and Purdue's idea is we have this very powerful painkiller, but A, you know, really, is addiction that big a deal? And in fact, they kind of blithely suggest, they had no scientific basis for believing this, but they said, it's not addictive. In fact, if you're using these drugs for the treatment of pain, it's addictive less than 1% of mm -hmm. the time. And that was their pitch. And so if you look at the history of prescribing opioids in 1996, you get this sudden steep climb. Mm. And that coincides with the introduction of OxyContin. Mm -hmm. And the thing with OxyContin, the sort of revolutionary difference between that and oxycodone, isn't it? The content part is the continuous release, which is the coding. And so again, going back, that's if they're taken, quote, as prescribed, supposedly. But if you began to see about how people were getting around that coding, they were crushing it, they were doing all sorts of things in order to be able to get the drug as one hit. And they said that the drug was supposed to last for 12 hours of pain, but then it turned out, right, that actually 
it didn't last for 12 hours. You were going to need more if, you, if it was, in fact, for pain. So this gets into the whole question of who knew what, when. And so this brings me to another key event in the book, which revolves around the Sacklers and the FDA. And again, multiple generations of Sacklers seem to be able to work around the governmental safeguards put in place to prevent exactly the type of abuse that we're describing. So what happened with the FDA and what level of responsibility do you feel the FDA deserves for what the Sacklers went on to do with the sale of OxyContin in this country and around the world? Yeah, I mean, I should say, just to be perfectly clear, the Sacklers didn't cooperate with me in you know my writing of this book. They were very- They tried to sue they, the hell out of you, actually. Right? to sue me for yes. the last few years. They were very, very hostile to the idea that I would do this, in part because I initially wrote a piece in The New Yorker in 2017 mm-hmm. about the yep. family, and they, they were not enthusiastic about that piece. Having said that, I'm very interested in sort of seeing it from their point of view, understanding the story that they mm-hmm. tell themselves about this whole saga. And one of the things that they very consistently say is, hey, we didn't do anything that the FDA didn't sign off on. So that's one of their big Mm -hmm. defenses, right, is that the FDA signed off on all this. And it's kind of an interesting, when you think about it ethically, an interesting proposition, because how much credence you give that depends a little bit on how much regard you have for the FDA as a check. So if you look at the history of OxyContin, the drug was approved by the FDA in late 95. The company had to get approval from a guy named Curtis Wright, who was the medical examiner at the FDA, the person whose job it was to kind of shepherd their new drug application through the bureaucracy. And he had to sign off not just on the idea that it was safe and efficacious to prescribe the drug to American consumers, but also he had to sign off on the marketing claims made for the drug. Mm. And he ends up signing off in record time allowing the company to make some pretty outlandish marketing claims about how it was believed that OxyContin was less prone to abuse than other available opioids and things like that. And uh, about a year after he does this, Curtis Wright ends up going and working at Purdue Pharma for (laughs) three times his government salary. Right. So to me, there are many, many instances in the book in which I think that the FDA is kind of co-opted by the, just the sheer amount of money in the pharmaceutical business, but that's a fairly glaring one. And in terms of the responsibility of the FDA, I mean, I'll put it to you this way. It'd be one thing if all these years on the FDA looked back and said, mea culpa, mea culpa, mistakes were made. But when I had a Freedom of Information Act request, which they kind of slow walked, Mm -hmm. and then I I actually sued them in federal court to get them to turn up, to force them to turn over thousands Hmm. of pages of documents, internal documents. And of course, one of the things I wanted to see were Curtis Wright's emails, because I wanted to see what was the back and forth he had with the company. And they came Mm -hmm. back, they were ordered by a judge, a federal judge to turn over all this stuff to me. And they came back and said that all of Curtis Wright's communications had been lost or destroyed. Oh, come on. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It it seems pretty dodgy to me. Yes. That's what certainly count as a smoking uh, non-gun. So I want to shift a little bit and talk about another major thread in the book. Probably the biggest reason why, as you said in the beginning, we know the Sackler name. The museum at Harvard, I remember when that opened. And so we're talking about the question of philanthropy. Now, what level and kind of philanthropists have the Sacklers been historically, just for people who don't know? I mean, where would you rank them 
in the American pantheon, if you will. And what was it that was notable about their particular kind of philanthropy? You already made reference to to some of it. They're huge philanthropists. I mean, they've given hundreds of millions of dollars away over the decades. And I think that they've given in a few key areas, pretty consistently uh, in the arts and to universities and to medical research. So it's, it's interesting because even when I started work on initially my piece for The New Yorker in 2017, this was a family that was really chiefly known for being incredibly generous. And when they were mm-hmm. written about, it was as philanthropists. So for instance, eventually Mortimer Sackler dies in 2010. Raymond, mm-hmm. Raymond Sackler died in 2017. And you'd get these obituaries, which would be like, 11 paragraphs about the philanthropy, and then yeah. they would say, and incidentally, they own Purdue Pharma, which uh, you know, produced the controversial drug OxyContin, and then they'd round it out. But, but most people had no real idea of where their money came from. Exactly. There are many people who didn't have a sense. And, and I, one thing that I hmm. was able to substantiate in the book is that that was not an accident, right? <clears throat> there was a fairly conscious strategy in the family over a long period of time to try and keep the family name in stories about ribbon cuttings and gala openings and big gifts and out of stories about OxyContin and Purdue Pharma. So this kind of dovetails back to Isaac's dictum and the whole notion, something you and I have talked about and you write about in the book, reputation laundering, right? Name, reputation equals reputation. And then the question is, how do you maintain that reputation and to what degree is it embedded in what you do, how you make your money, and to what degree can it be separated from that and given its own place in society? And so I guess my question is, given the nature of their philanthropy on the one hand and the fact that in almost every instance it was required in the paperwork that their names be on whatever it is that they were giving money to permanently... And given, on the other hand, the source of their increasing astronomical wealth, what does it say about the Sacklers in particular, and more generally, in your mind, about the traditional American system of giving by which the rich and powerful in our societies trade their wealth for what they intend to be, I guess, eternal naming rights on the facades of some of the world's most respected cultural institutions? It was one of the aspects of this whole project that left me very jaded, I must say. The Hmm. seeing the ways in which these institutions would kind of prostrate themselves and just make one allowance after another for wealthy donors and to witness the often kind of pretty rough hardball Hmm. tactics employed by the family in order to get their way and and sort of get what they want. And so there's this kind of fascinating dynamic where I think from the outside, you know, you go to the Sackler wing at the Met and there's a sort of tendency, I think, to, you know, if you squint your eyes, it's just, it's just like, this is just another kind of storied family, right? Or you think of them as like the robber barons or something, some family from long ago that gave money and there's the name. But in practice, a lot of the time, it's this much more aggressive kind of assertive Mortimer Sackler is going to have a very special birthday party and he would like to have it in the Sackler wing at the Met and they're going to bring in their own interior designer to (laughs) build some additional columns on the Temple of Dender because that is Mm -hmm. what the donor wants. 
And the expectation is the Met better get in line. Give me what I'm asking for here because we were the ones who gave the money all those years ago to build this place. Arthur Sackler's longtime lawyer had a line that I think is very revealing. What he said was, if you want your name on it, if there's a naming agreement, that's not charity. That's a business transaction. Yep, that's very telling. So from Isaac Sackler, again, I hate to keep going back to the original guy, but that's, yeah. you know, that's what we're drawn to in these stories. From Isaac Sackler 100 years ago to David Sackler, who I think was just last week, threatened on behalf of the family to pull out of the family's $4.5 billion settlement with the U.S. government, in which they would have essentially gotten off without more or less scot-free going forward and would still have billions and billions of dollars to their names. So this all seems like a pretty Shakespearean story to me. And speaking of great plays, you and I have already discussed our mutual admiration for the Lehman Trilogy, Stefano Massini's epic play about the rise and fall of the House of Lehman, which, like the Sackler's fortune, began with three ambitious Jewish brothers pursuing the American dream. So I'm wondering how you might compare the Sacklers and the Lehmans as dynastic parables within the larger history of American capitalism. Similarities, differences, and what it may say about the culture where we built and live in. Yeah, wow. So it's funny, the Lehman Trilogy, you very astutely picked up on the similarities between Mm -hmm. the Lehman Trilogy and, and my book, which are not accidental because I saw the play as I was working on the book. And structurally, I was very inspired by the notion of looking at three Mm. generations. But it's interesting because, I mean, there's a critique of the Lehman trilogy, which I wouldn't say it diminished my enjoyment of the play, but I think is fairly accurate critique, which is that the play somewhat glosses over the fact that that first generation. So the way in which the Lehman trilogy unfolds, right, is that you sort of start with the first generation immigrants They've got a glint in their eye and a dream and, mm-hmm. they, and they build yep. this empire. And then you end up with the kind of ruin of Lehman. 2008. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But of course, that first generation made all their money on slavery, right? Like there's this right. sort of funny sense in which the sin was there from the <laughs> beginning. But I do think that there are similarities. And I think there's a kind of tendency sometimes to tell these generational stories as stories of generational decline that you start with the kind of protean first generation and then everything else becomes a copy and then a copy of a copy. And part of what was so interesting to me about the Sacklers is that Richard Sackler, who in some ways is sort of the villain of the book, is the second generation and he's born into wealth, but he has all the ambition that that earlier generation had and less of a moral compass. I mean, the interesting thing for me about the Sacklers was that You have Arthur and his brothers who kind of devise a model for mingling medicine and commerce in the 1950s. And it actually takes decades before... It really comes to fruition. Before it really comes to fruition in Mm -hmm. the hands of the second generation. Who is one more generation removed from the notion of the name versus the fortune. Well, I mean, to me, that was what was so telling about Isaac. The the idea that, that Isaac actually said... If you lose a fortune, you can always make another. The idea being, Mm -hmm. don't protect the fortune at all costs. Protect your integrity and what the family name means at all costs, because that is the more fragile thing. That's the harder thing to get back when you've squandered it. So the kind of poetry of the idea that the subsequent generations, in the interest of growing and protecting the fortune, just completely kiss away any sense of credibility or, or integrity. 
associated mm-hmm. with the family name. So that leads me to my final question, which is given all that the Sacklers have done and not done, also a damning element to their story. Do you feel now that the final legacy of the Sacklers has been written? Not just your wonderful book, but what's happened, how they are perceived, how they will be perceived? Or can you imagine some possible scenario in which some future member or generation of the Sackler family might be able to turn back the clock on Isaac's warning to his sons that, as we just said, a fortune once lost can be made again, but one's good name once lost is lost forever. Or do you feel like this is it? They have crossed the Rubicon in their deeds, and that is the story of that family. Well, I'll answer the question like this. I really believed that there would be some apostate. I believed there would be some third generation Sackler who had inherited a huge amount of money that was Oxycontin money and would feel some real discomfort with that. Mm -hmm. It's a big family. I thought I would find that person. And I looked and I looked and I didn't find that person. What I found was a tremendous uniformity within the family in a kind of sense of grievance, a sense that they're just terribly misunderstood, effectively. And they're still telling that same story, like as with the tobacco industry or especially the man- gun manufacturers. We made something that essentially could, is to help people. It's the people who have abused it. Absolutely. That are guilty. That they're the ones who are guilty. And that is a kind of consistent refrain that you've seen through this whole time. And it gets crazy. I mean, I, part of what I got for the book was a lot of internal, private emails and communications among the family. And what the way they talk behind closed doors, you know, they make it sound as though the, the biggest victims of the opioid crisis are actually the, the Sackler family. It's mm. pretty shocking. But to answer your question, I could see a scenario in which some future generation that's a little bit more removed, you know, where it's not like your own father or your own uncle who you would be implicating by going out and doing the right thing. Some future generation recognizes and acknowledges the harm that the family did and seeks to make amends. But even in the settlement, which is actually going to, it's getting finalized this week. Is so it? Is it? Yeah, okay. they'll pay this $4.5 billion, but with no admission of wrongdoing. I mean, this is, this is kind of classic with the Sacklers, right? Is that on the one hand, they're willing mm-hmm. to pay this money to make everything go away so that they can never be sued over any of this ever again by anyone. On the other hand, they are... They're insisting to the bitter end uh, that they're, they're going to pay $4.5 billion, though they personally have done nothing wrong. <laughs> well, let us hope for that future, <laughs> the future apostate to come along and try and uh, rectify some of this tragedy. But I can't thank you enough. The book really, I was riveted and horrified all the way through, and it really made me think a lot about the generational history of how different businesses, industries, families are built, and how messages begin and how they get lost and how they get warped. And I think it's incredibly important for us to remember as now that everything is more separated in a way from the people that built them, yeah. We have to remember what the origins are in order to understand what the implications are morally for what we do and, and who profits. Absolutely. You've done an amazing job, and uh, I could talk to you for hours, but that'll do for today. I'll let you yeah. go. Oh, this was a real pleasure, uh, though. Thank yeah. you for having me. Thanks, Patrick. All right. Talk to you soon. You too. Bye. Bye. 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Beyond the Page. You can catch previous podcast episodes, as well as installments of SVWC Now, our series of video conversations, at lithub.com or at the Sun Valley Writers Conference website, svwc.com. I'm John Burnham Schwartz. Thanks so much for listening. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday. Mm-hmm.